Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with HIVMA Chair Dr. Raj Gandhi with Harvard University and Dr. Adarsh Bimraj with the Cleveland Clinic about COVID-19 treatments, how they have progressed over the past year, and what may lie ahead. Thank you for joining us today. Much of the nation's focus has been on COVID vaccines and the hopes of bringing this pandemic to an end. Dr. Gandhi, are treatments for COVID still a relevant part of the discussion? Treatments are as relevant now as they've been uh, throughout the pandemic, and I'll try to lay out the case as to why. As we roll out vaccinations in the U.S. and around the world, we're continuing to see outbreaks. Um, Just this week in the United States, there's an outbreak in Oregon. Um, Even as we speak, there's more than 45,000 cases per day in the U.S. and more than 700 deaths per day. But that's actually a small proportion of what's going on around the world. Uh, We know as of this week that there are outbreaks in India and Nepal other parts of Asia, Turkey, outbreaks throughout South America. Even this week, more than 860,000 people are being infected and being diagnosed every day and almost 15,000 deaths per day. So in this setting of these outbreaks, I think novel treatments are critically important. For example, we need outpatient treatments to prevent progression and hospitalization. We certainly need inpatient treatments to hasten recovery, get people out of the hospital, and decompress these overwhelmed healthcare systems as we're seeing in India, tragically in India. And we also need to develop preventative therapies. As of today, we don't have any authorized preventative therapies. So thinking ahead to the future, even as vaccines, and as they should be rolled out further and further, I think there's going to continue to be sporadic outbreaks, and we're going to need treatments to keep um, those outbreaks under control. What do we have for treatment right now, and why do we need better treatments? Right now in the United States, we have monoclonal antibody therapies, combinations like bamlanivimab, atosevimab, casarivimab, and devimab. These are important, but logistically, they're not easy to give. And certainly worldwide, uh, there's great barriers to giving these intravenous medicines. For inpatients as of today, we have remdesivir for severe COVID. We have dexamethasone for severe and critical COVID. And in select patients with severe COVID, we have tocilizumab and baricitinib and perhaps anticoagulation, but these just aren't good enough. Um, For outpatients, we need oral agents to prevent progression. We don't have an oral agent right now that works against COVID. For inpatients, we need better combinations, uh, perhaps of immune modulators, and we need to know what is the optimal anticoagulation. For prevention, there are data suggesting antibodies are effective and they may have a role for people who haven't gotten the vaccine or for those who don't respond to the vaccine. But antibodies, again, usually are administered subcutaneously underneath the skin, sometimes intravenously, and we need oral agents. And then the last point I'll make as to why I think treatments are still relevant, we need to find out not only drugs that work, but we need to find out what doesn't work. The use of unproven therapies is still too common around the world. People are using unproven therapies, and that leads to false hope and potential harm. So I would like to say that we need to redouble our efforts around treatment. Dr. Bimraj, how effective are the current treatments against variants of the virus? Even before we delve into how effective are therapies against the variants, I think I'm just going to briefly talk about uh, what are variants and what are the different kind of variants of concern of variants of interest. 
as we know, like a lot of viruses, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, as it replicates, it can make mistakes uh, in the copying of its own genome, which are called as mutations. Almost all viruses, to some degree, have mutations. And when the virus accumulates a, a kind of mutation or a combination of mutations, that kind of gives it an advantage. Either that is, it can be transmitted easily, or it becomes more sticky to the human cells, and it can either increase the severity or lethality of, of the infection in patients, or it can develop some kind of resistance to the treatment we work or the vaccines we use. We call it a variant of concern. Again, it's still a subjective designation uh, by a bunch of people because they kind of look at the combination of mutations and then figure that this might be relevant. And also there's a bias in how we are detecting variants. People or areas which sequence a lot of the ones that will be detecting uh, these variants, and maybe they are significant variants in areas which are resource poor where we don't sequence. Take India, we know about the B617 variant, but our genomic surveillance data is very limited because it's not as extensive as places like UK or Denmark. That is a brief overview about variants. And the main variants that people are talking about are the UK variant, which is the B117. And then we have the South African variant, which is the B1135. We have the Brazilian variant, which is the P1, and uh, we have the California variant, which is the B1427 and 1429, the New York variant, which is the B1526, uh, and of course, the Indian variant we talked about, which is B1617. If we look at what these variants could be resistant to, most of the data, even that is very preliminary because majority of the data is lab-based data and we have very limited clinical data is resistance to the monoclonal antibodies. And it stands to reason because the monoclonal antibodies are like precision tools. These are antibodies that can bind to the spike protein and prevent the virus, uh, the spike protein for binding to the ACE receptors in human cells. Because they target only one part, all it takes is one or two, uh, two mutations or a few mutations, and then uh, the antibodies might not be very effective in binding to these spike proteins. Based on petri dish data, in vitro data, we realized that at least bamlevinumab, the single uh, antibody, again, uh, its ability to inactivate the virus or what we call a pseudovirus with these mutations gets significantly limited in lab tests and especially to the South African variant and, and to the Brazilian variant, but surprisingly not that much in terms of, again, uh, the UK variant. And the Indian variant does have the mutations. The two mutations that are present are the E484Q as well as the, I think, uh, the L452R. And these mutations similar mutations, not exactly the same mutations, are there in the other strains, which at least in a lab could develop resistance to bamlanivimab. We really don't know, at least theoretically, we can extrapolate that maybe there's some amount of resistance that could be there in the Indian strain. When we have the combination monoclonal antibodies, they added edasivimab to bamlanivimab. And when they tested this combination to some of these uh, variants, or at least the viruses or pseudoviruses have the same mutations as the variants, it was not very effective against the South African strain and as well as the Brazilian strain, but it still retained efficacy against the UK strain and as well as the Californian strains.
the third monoclonal antibodies, which is the casarevimab and imdevimab, at least in in vitro studies, retained activity to most of these variants, including the South African variant and including the Brazilian variant as well. And again, it kind of stands to reason when you have two antibodies, they are targeting two different sites. I think it takes more mutations for it to be resistant to both these antibodies. That is the data we have about how these mutations or the variants affect therapies. The other therapies, remdesivir, which targets what's an RNA polymerase, theoretically speaking, you can can develop mutations and develop resistance, but we haven't seen that happening, or at least uh, have that being uh, reported. These are mostly the antivirals we are talking about. The next class of therapeutic agents that we use to treat COVID-19 is not in the viral phase. It's in the later on inflammatory phase where we are not targeting the virus itself, but we are actually targeting uh, the immune response of the patient. What are these drugs? We're talking about corticosteroids. We're talking about tocilizumab. We're talking about baricitinib. Because this is not, they are not targeting the virus itself, I think it's less likely we will develop any kind of resistance or response to therapies. Again, we have to monitor them. So far, what I've talked about is whatever minimal information or little information we have, how therapies could be potentially affected by the emerging variants. But another thing we have to realize is, depending on how we approach this, can we at least decrease the emergence of variants? Why do variants emerge? When there's a lot of circulating viruses, when it mutates a lot, that's when variants emerge. So that happens when you have too many people spreading the virus or too many people having the virus and too much virus being in a single person. How can we reduce this? One is, again, by vaccinations, by making sure that people are treated early so that the duration of illness is reduced, I think we can at least theoretically decrease the chance of these mutants and variants emerging. If you go back and look, the long shedders or immunocompromised patients who shed the virus for very long, or those are the people, at least based on the case reports, the chances that you have these mutations or mutants occur earlier. If you have effective therapies, that can shorten the duration of not just the infection, but the viral shedding, I think theoretically that'll translate into probably lesser mutants, not just the existing ones, but even new ones emerging. Uh, And how do we achieve that? I think as Raj pointed out, we need better therapies, but also therapies, maybe combinations of therapies that target more than one particular site. What do I mean by that? Maybe they are antivirals that are targeting the protease, the viral entry, as well as the RNA polymerase, then the probability that you'll get three different mutations and then have a survival advantage is much, much less. And that's what we do in HIV therapy. Maybe developing drug combinations like that probably are not only going to be more effective in treating patients and probably theoretically in uh, variants emerging. The pandemic is not over yet. And given the rate that it's going, at least variants, new variants might emerge. And it's necessary when we do develop new agents and research, not just looking at can we actually make patients better or transmission go down, but also can we come up with therapeutic strategies or cocktails which can decrease the chance of variants emerging. Uh, I know that as a lengthy explanation for simple questions, but I think the two things that we should do is not just uh, making sure that the effective therapies to new variants, but also making sure that therapies are effective in 
stemming the emergence of new variants that could potentially be resistance to these drugs. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Excellent points. Thank you. Dr. Gandhi, are any of the treatments we have useful in addressing what has been called long COVID? The short answer is we don't know yet, Um, but let's take a step back and say what we do know. Even though there's a lot of focus on long COVID, we've known for many, many years that other infections also can result in what are sometimes called post-infectious syndromes. So I'll give you the example of Ebola, uh, chikungunya. These viral infections are often followed by a fairly prolonged phase of symptoms. And so it's not totally unique to to COVID. But let's turn our attention to to long COVID. It's sometimes called called post-acute COVID, long COVID. Uh, Some people are calling it post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2. These are the different names that that are all meaning essentially the same thing. Many people think that these are best defined as having symptoms of abnormal symptoms or signs that last for four weeks or more, but we're still casting around for an exact case definition. What we can say is that people with what's called long COVID really have a variety of of different signs and symptoms, and they they kind of fall into different kind of domains. Some general symptoms are things like fatigue, muscle weakness, joint pain. On the lungs, we know COVID is a pneumonia. Um, People can have persistent shortness of breath. They can have cough. If you you do a CT scan or other imaging, sometimes the CAT scan will be abnormal. If you do pulmonary tests, they can be abnormal. The brain seems to be affected in some people with long COVID, um, things like cognitive changes, anxiety, headache. We'll remember back to last year when people started reporting changes in taste and smell. Some of those can can persist for for many, many months. On the heart, palpitations, chest tightness, and then on the skin, things like hair loss. These are amongst the signs of what is sometimes being called long COVID. How often does this occur? In some studies, about 75% of inpatients will have persistent symptoms and about a third of outpatients will have persistent symptoms. But I would say we don't know precisely how frequent it is. A lot of the studies are not done in a way that we can be certain as, as to the frequency. So that's a little bit about what we mean by long COVID. The fundamental issue to get to your question as to how do we treat it is to figure out what the cause of long COVID is. So here are some ideas that are being explored for what the cause of long COVID is. First, for those people who are hospitalized, especially those people who are in the intensive care unit, even if they don't have COVID, we know some of those people will have what's called post-ICU syndrome or post-acute respiratory distress syndrome. That's been known for some time. Now, the trouble with that as our definition is some patients with COVID, with long COVID, have never been hospitalized. So there's got to be something else going on for those people. Another theory Uh, is hyperinflammation. Dr. Grimrod was just talking about the hyperinflammatory response in the hospital. Maybe that hyperinflammatory response contributes to long COVID. Some people have found autoimmune markers, you know, the body turning against itself. And then others have found evidence of viral persistence, although that's still, in my mind, quite debatable as to whether the virus persists. Most of these respiratory viruses get cleared out in a few weeks. They don't really last longer than that. Why am I belaboring this? Depending on the cause, the treatment is going to differ. We don't have a treatment right now, but this is what we need to to develop to to get a treatment for long COVID. First, we need a uh, agreed upon case definition. What counts as long COVID? 
we actually need to understand what are the risk factors. If you have more severe COVID, are you more likely to get long COVID? We think so, but we need to know that for sure. Does age have an effect? Are older people more likely or are younger people more likely? Again, the, the field is kind of mixed here. Are there other comorbidities um, that contribute? A third need is to know how long COVID progresses. How often does it get better on its own? How long does it, how often does it get worse? And then depending on those causes, and I've, I've outlined a few causes, but there may be others, how do we best care for people with long COVID? A lot of people are wondering if the vaccine might affect long COVID either to make it better or is it neutral or worse? We, we don't know. We just need a studies to kind of answer that. But this podcast is on treatments. And so the last plea I will make or the last charge to action I'll make is we need to know how do our COVID treatments affect long COVID? I am optimistic that the treatments we've been talking about over this podcast that decrease the severity of COVID will translate into lower rates of long COVID, but we don't know for sure. So many of the studies that the guidelines panels for NIH and IDSA have been reviewing are short-term studies of COVID treatments, 28 days, 30 days. That's how long these studies last. We need treatment studies that last six months and 12 months to know if you give a monoclonal antibody, are you less likely to have long COVID? If you get remdesivir, are you less likely to have long COVID? We don't know the answer to that, but we really need to know the answer to that. I want to turn now to the devastating situation in India. Dr. Bimraj, what do you think is most needed to get the spread of this virus under control? So, Amanda, I think devastating would uh, still not capture of what's going on in India. And I'm Indian. I'm originally from India, and I've been talking to multiple providers as well as a lot of people back uh, in India. Not only is there a pandemic going on, but there's also a panic epidemic and an infodemic of misinformation. I think if we have to deal with the pandemic, uh, especially in India, I think we also have to deal with the panic epidemic as well as the infodemic of misinformation. Uh, with the pandemic, as uh, you sure are reading the news, I think there is decreased uh, availability of essential resources. Again, the hospitals which are going without oxygen, even for patients on ECMOs and mechanical ventilations. And there's also, there's a huge demand for medications, basic supplies, and part of why the demand is artificially going up is people are going into a panic mode and ending up buying a lot of these supplies and medications. The world has appropriately risen to the occasion and realized that we live in a global village and is helping India. But while the supplies are there, but we also have to make sure that uh, treatments and uh, whatever resources are appropriately used. What do I mean by that? I think people have to realize that majority of the people who have mild to moderate COVID-19, especially those without risk factors, are going to get better. There's no reason to panic. And I think it's important to spread the message in India. There's no reason to go and stock up on remdesivir or stock up on tocilizumab. There's a black market where these drugs are being sold for ridiculously exorbitant prices. I think these medications should be made available to patients who are hypoxemic or severe. And I don't think mild and moderate ill patients or patients who are not even ill or who are scared of getting the disease should be uh, holding these medications. I think please make sure that these are available to people who need it. And there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, my conversations with people at the front lines, patients are demanding as well as providers are prescribing about six to seven medications for mild to moderate cases uh, and especially steroids. 
And if you look at most of the data, they're well done studies for the last one year uh, for COVID-19. And I think that information is valuable, which providers and frontline providers in India should be using. Using steroids in mild to moderate patients might be harmful based on recovery decks and all these studies, uh, on the, uh, the studies, as well as a lot of polypharmacy might not necessarily be good. And I think these drugs should be saved for patients who are uh, in uh, hospitals or even though they're not in hospitals who need oxygen or hypoxemic at home, and we should reserve it for them. And there's a lot of misinformation also about COVID being spread through sewage systems. And again, people are panicking with a lot of these misinformation. Are there alternative uh, therapies which are not effective that are being promoted or even sold and profiteering is going on? To address the pandemic, not only should we make sure that there are adequate resources available in India, but it's also important to for providers and as well as people in India not to panic and be, can I say, emotionally equanimous. Again, be careful about consuming information, especially on sources like WhatsApp or Facebook, uh, where information spreads, which is good, but also misinformation. So be a critical consumer. And I think some kind of criticalness, I think, is important when you're consuming information. I think that is my two cents on uh, what the solution should be uh, in India to address the pandemic. We absolutely here in the United States need to provide assistance for humanitarian reasons. This is is, um, a tragedy going on right now. And we also need to reduce the number of cases. As Dr. Bumaraj was saying before, the more cases there are, the more likely there are to be variants, and, and we need to reduce the number of cases. How can we do that? I think it's the ways that, that he outlined. We should also be donating vaccines, uh, raw materials. Um, India is a powerhouse when it comes to making vaccines, but they need the raw materials. Even though India is a powerhouse with making vaccines, I think they need even more manufacturing capability um, for them, for India itself, as well as around the world. Going back to treatments for a second, a lot of the treatments we were talking about earlier are not practical in India. The monoclonal antibodies in particular are challenging because they need to be given intravenously. So we need to develop new treatments. And that's the theme uh, is to develop new treatments to reduce morbidity and mortality in India and elsewhere. How do we do that? Clinical trials have to be done the same way clinical trials have gotten us to where we are thus far. They'll get us even further if we can get those trials to figure out what does and doesn't work for COVID. And then the last two points I'll make, COVID has taught us as we, as Dr. Bimra said, we're all in this together. That's the whole lesson of COVID and no one is safe until everyone is safe. India and the United States, Brazil, that's all showing us the same thing. Remember flatten the curve. That was our whole mantra last year um, in 2020. We got to go back to the basics in our own country, but also in India, uh, masking, distancing, flatten the curve, prevent the healthcare systems from getting overwhelmed. Distinction, excellence, service. Set yourself apart today. Become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org slash FIDSA to apply by May 31st. Thank you. And Dr. Gandhi, you spoke a bit already about future directions for COVID research. What more can you tell us about how treatments for COVID-19 are still evolving? And where do you think research is most needed? Treatments are still evolving and advancing. Dr. Primraj commented that for outpatients, we think antivirals are the most important. That's because viral replication is most active just before someone gets sick and during those first week or so after they get sick. So there are new antivirals coming down the pike that we need to watch, see if they develop into something useful. 
There's some that target the viral replication, that is the ability of the virus to make copies of itself. There's drugs like molnupiravir, which affects the virus's ability to copy itself. There's a nucleotide um, analog that also works that way. Interestingly, there's also drugs that target the viral protease. For those of us infectious disease doctors, we know that um, uh, protease inhibitors and viral replication inhibitors, RNA polymerase inhibitors are really critical for other infectious diseases and hopefully for COVID. And then there's drugs that are repurposed drugs that are trying to block virus entry. There's a drug called Camostat that works against a, a protein called Tempress2, which is the way the virus gets into cells. So those are antivirals. And, and I think oral agents in particular, as we said before, are needed to keep people out of the hospital. For inpatients, we need to know how to combine anti-inflammatories. Dexamethasone is the bedrock, right? That's the drug that reduces mortality. We know some patients also benefit from adding tocilizumab. But what about combinations of immunomodulators? What about combining baricitinib? What about combining drugs that block other cytokines? That's what we need to know in, in the near future. We haven't touched much on anticoagulation, but there are some data we think that might be relevant for hospitalized patients about um, you know, blood thinners, anticoagulation. But how about outpatients? Again, a year in, we still don't know. Last couple of points I'll make on this. We talked earlier about long COVID. Do these treatments affect long COVID? And then finally, do we have a preventive drug? We've been focused on treatment, but just as an HIV, if we could have a drug that prevented COVID, that would be critical. So we were talking about India just now. All the drugs that we're developing, we also have to keep an eye on. This is not a US pandemic. This is not a European pandemic. This is a global pandemic. So we need cheap and effective drugs that can be used not just in the US, not just in Europe, but around the world. Dr. Bimraj stole my thunder here, but I'm gonna uh, come back to this. HIV is a paradigm, I think. HIV in the 1980s and 90s, we didn't have effective therapies, but what happened is it was an iterative approach. We had one drug after another until we got to a tipping point with HIV in 1995, 96, and then HIV changed almost overnight, it seemed. COVID-19, it has been an iterative process. We're getting there more quickly, but it's gonna be the same paradigm. One drug after another, combine them, and then figure out what makes things better. Thank you, and Dr. Bimraj, anything to add? Uh, I do, uh, I don't know, confess that I stole Raj's uh, thunder. Of course, he hears the chair of HIVMA. <laughs> but to add to what Dr. Gandhi said, uh, one, I think developing new agents or combination of agents, like Raj said, I think is very critical. Uh, I'm very skeptical if one antiviral alone, like HIV, is going to do the trick. The second thing I think is important is also targeting these drugs to uh, the right population. When it comes to comedy and COVID-19 treatments, I think timing is everything, right? What works early on in the disease process where the viral is replicating might not work. And I think we still need some precision, again, studies to show, again, okay, which population. So I'm, one, I'm going to use an example as you have patients who are at very high risk and you have patients at low risk. Again, are there specific drugs that work with specific comorbidities as against uh, other comorbidities? We don't really have such nuanced uh, treatments. Once patients actually get into a hospital, like some people have very high CRP levels, where some people have very high D-dimers, some people end up having MISA, which is a multi-system inflammatory disease. Some people have really bad lung damage with odds and some don't. Do various therapies have different effects in each of these subpopulations or precise populations? Even for existing therapies, I think we don't have studies. 
Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is we have interventions, but we still are not sure where or which population they work best. Uh, like combination therapies, like uh, Dr. Rod said, uh, Dr. Gandhi said, are important, especially in the later phase of disease, multiple inflammatory. So there are studies which showed adding tocilizumab to steroids will be effective. But when? Again, do we wait 24 hours? Is there, or when they're not responding, or their blood work for a particular marker looks abnormal? Can we tailor it to biomarkers? Or can we tailor it to certain timings in the disease process? These combinations, I think, really becomes important. So that's one thing. And the other last thing I'm going to say is, following the long-term outcomes for each of these treatments or even your treatments, I think that becomes vital. We even have mortality only for 28 days. What happens, what if the long-term mortality of these particular agents is different? I think it's really critical for us to know these critical outcomes. So not only do we need new interventions or combinations of interventions, we need to study them in a much more nuanced manner in specific subpopulations. We also have to look at what are the long-term outcomes of these things. I think all these three are critical uh, research agendas that we have to set for the future for COVID-19. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Bimraj and Gandhi for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.